I um, left Frederick, went down to Baltimore, was in a hotel room, and I overdosed. He hit me with Narcan. Um, I went into the bathroom, came back out, and my boyfriend was laying on the bed, and I was slapping him in the face. I was like, wake up, wake up. So then I had to hit him with Narcan. I remember them saying, like, be careful with this. It's, it's pretty strong. And, um, you know, I'm a heroin addict. That's what I do. That was Megan King. Megan, like more than 300 people in Frederick County, overdosed in 2019. Megan is currently about four months sober, another step on her nearly 15-year journey with recovery. This week, we take a look at the number of overdoses and number of fatal overdoses in 2019 to see what, if any, progress has been made in Frederick County. I'm Heather Mangelio, and this is Frederick Uncut. Megan is one of the two women in recovery I spoke with for an article about opioid overdoses. Megan shared her story about how she first started taking opioids and what it's like to be in recovery. But before we hear the rest of her story, I'm joined now by my colleague, Jeremy Arias, a reporter who covers crime. So, Jeremy, tell me a little bit about why we decided to write this story. Uh, well, since uh, 2016, when the numbers peaked for opioid-related overdoses, uh, and, and that was a just a horrible year in Frederick County, I believe the total was, uh, I think there was like 409 total overdoses, uh, more than 50 of those uh, resulted in deaths. Uh, so since that year, um, we've always tried to uh, to do sort of a, a year-end looking back at um, where we are, uh, where we stand as a county uh, in terms of the opioid epidemic, which, which was recognized by the governor uh, either in 2016 or shortly thereafter. Um, and, and so that's that's sort of the reasoning why we want to keep a close eye on these numbers is obviously uh, it, it's never gotten as high uh, as, as it was in 2016. Um, it, it actually, um, the, the numbers did in 2019 drop to their lowest point uh, since 2015, which was right before the peak. Uh, but there are still a significant number of overdoses every year uh, directly related to either heroin or, or opioids in general. So you said the numbers dropped. So what are we looking at for 2019? Uh, so in, in 2019, uh, there were a total of 245 um, non-fatal opioid overdoses. Uh, 48 um, fatalities also occurred. Uh, so added together, I believe it's, I believe that the, the total overall is, is a, a 293, um, which, like I said, again, is uh, lower. Uh, that, is, that represents the lowest point um, in opioid-related overdoses that we've seen in Frederick County since 2015, uh, but again, still very significant. And also of note um, that, that those 48 deaths uh, are still relatively close to the 55 uh, fatalities that we had due to opioid-related overdoses uh, uh, in 2018 uh, and the 51 in 2017. 
And when you're talking with law enforcement about what they're doing to try to tackle the opioid issue, what are some things that they're saying because of the numbers this year? Well, uh, law enforcement uh, in Frederick County, uh, like law enforcement across a lot of places that, that are being affected by this nationwide epidemic, uh, have really uh, taken a an all-hands kind of approach. They realize um, that this is not a problem uh, that they're going to be able to enforce their way out of. Um, it can't be solved simply by making arrests, in other words. Um, so they're, they, they team up with, um, uh, with health department officials, uh, both local and the state. Um, there's outreach in schools, getting uh, detectives um, from the uh, sheriff's office or from city police uh, into Frederick County Public Schools frequently to talk about the dangers um, of using opioids or the dangers represented by these drugs. Um, so, I mean, it's it's a multifaceted kind of approach. And one of the things that uh, that's helped law enforcement a lot um, is both the, the city police and the sheriff's office in the last few years have taken to every time there is a call on the scanner for uh, an overdose, um, if it's determined um, that it's opioid-related, uh, somebody with the either the sheriff's office vice and narcotics unit or with uh, city police's drug enforcement unit uh, will go to the scene of that overdose, uh, and they will talk to the people there. Um, they <clears throat> will talk to either the individual who overdosed or if they're available, or with their friends, family members, and they're they're trying to figure out uh, where that person got those drugs, when they used, but more importantly, where they got those drugs. And if the person is is uncooperative or not, um, in, in other cases, uh, they, they might end up seizing a cell phone uh, at that scene. And they're using these as opportunities to develop leads on where the drugs are coming from, identify dealers, uh, the people who are distributing um, these these drugs in the community, uh, and they're using that uh, to try to make arrests. There there are fewer and fewer uh, we're seeing possession related uh, arrests, and in fact, um, <clears throat> the state actually passed a law. I believe it was um, in 2017, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it, it, part of its sanctuary stat, uh, law uh, is. Basically, it prevents law enforcement from uh, from filing for criminal charges, either p- uh, paraphernalia or uh, for possession offenses, if law enforcement has been called to the scene uh, to to respond to an overdose. Um, unless you're sitting on just a, a mountain of drugs, or uh, there's some other extenuating factor, they're not going to charge you. They, they're realizing law enforcement by and large, is realizing that a lot of the people who are overdosing that they're seeing at these kinds of calls are, are in, fact, uh, in fact, themselves victims uh, of this epidemic. Uh, they're not being treated as, as criminals. Uh, and that, uh, along with ongoing efforts to destigmatize um, opioid uh, addiction uh, and people struggling with that, um, have, have done a lot to 
um, to open up new avenues for these detectives to to investigate. And when you spoke with um, law enforcement, you spoke with someone from Frederick Police Department. What did they have to say about the decrease in number of fatalities? Uh, so I, I sat down uh, with Lieutenant Kirk Hanaberry. He is the commander of the Frederick Police Department's um, uh, Criminal Investigations Division, uh, one of the um, uh, one of the several uh, units that he oversees in CID is the Drug Enforcement um, Unit for for FPD. Uh, and and one of the things I, I, that I asked the lieutenant was, you know, could you explain why you think we're seeing this decrease that we saw in 2019? And he's he's cautiously optimistic, as as a lot of law enforcement are when they look at uh, at the numbers. Um, but his, his basic response was it, it, it could be generally attributed to uh, a couple different things. We might be seeing, um, some of the, the benefits of our, of our efforts to crack down on this, uh, and to, to spread awareness about the danger of this. We might actually be seeing that decrease, but there's also a, another factor, um, due to the widespread availability of naloxone, which is, uh, uh, an overdose um, reversing drug that is available in Maryland without a prescription uh, since for, for several years now. Um, with that being so prevalent in the community and so many people having received training for it and being aware of it, um, one of the things, the factors to uh, to take into account when you're looking at a decrease in the numbers is law enforcement might, might not be hearing about a lot of overdoses. Because if somebody happens upon somebody in their home or, or somebody is at the scene where somebody overdoses, they might be able to administer that, that drug and they might not call uh, 911, either because they don't feel it's necessary or they might not be aware of um, the, uh, the lack of, of criminal prosecution um, that, would, that would be um, brought against them if they did. Uh, so that's that's certainly a concern uh, that law enforcement has had for a number of years. When you look at um, these these uh, dips in the numbers, is are we getting the real picture uh, due to how much naloxone is out there? But but still, I mean, in either case, uh, the lieutenant was very firm in saying, you know, if people are getting these uh, doses of naloxone and we're not hearing about it, at least they're 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 being saved. Um, that's sort of the overall picture. Uh, so the prevalence of naloxone is definitely seen as, as generally a positive uh, in the community, how available it is um, and, and how well-known it is. Jeremy, thank you so much for coming in. Um, so both of us wrote the story, which you can find on fredericknewspost.com. Um, I, I think you probably did, did more work for it, but uh, I just talked to a couple <laughs> people, got some numbers. Both uh, of our bylines are on it. Sure. Um, but since neither of us um, can really talk from firsthand experience of what it's like to be someone um, in recovery for opioid use, um, I spoke with Megan King, um, who you heard earlier, who is now going to tell us a little bit more about what it's like to be in recovery and how she started first using opioids. I've been in active addiction for on and off for about since I was about 15, and that was kind of like harder drugs. So I was drinking and smoking weed prior to that, probably about 13, 12 maybe. So um, 
once I started into like heavier drugs, I ended up dropping out of high school. Um, at 16, I got pregnant. And um, that was the first time I had ever knew anything about, you know, recovery or CPS actually got involved. And um, I had to figure out what did I what, what did I wanted to do. Did I want to be a mom or did I want to, you know, keep going? So I made the decision to, to get clean. And um, it's been a battle. So, like, my kids are 13 and 11 now. And I still struggle with it every day. And when you decided to go for recovery, where did you first, what were the first steps? So, I first started into classes, like IOP, and um, I didn't really start going to, like, they, they, they told you you had to, so I had to do it in order for groups to go to self-help meetings, and um, I went, I just really didn't pay attention or, you know, I really didn't care. So my focus was like getting my, you know, making sure CPS didn't take my child away. So I've been in and out of IOPs. And um, I, like I said, I was doing self-help groups and that's where I first got introduced to it. And, and with that, was there a time that just really clicked for you that made you say, this is the right program for me, this is how I'm going to get clean? Like I said, I've I've been in and out, in and out. So I've gotten clean, gotten into a program, staying clean for a little bit, and then relapsed. And the cycle has just repeated itself until now. Like I'm 32, and like I said, this started at my son when I was 18. You mentioned that cycle. So what kind of broke that cycle? So people talk about getting sick and tired of doing this. I don't know if people understand the... It's not just the using, it's everything that comes along with the using. It's the hurting of your family, your children, the people that love you the most. I'm ready to work on myself. I'm ready to be a productive member of society. I'm ready to have a career, not just jobs. You know, like the normal life. I just don't want to hurt anymore. And I'm tired of hurting my kids. And so for when you're right now in recovery, what are some of the things that you're doing to continue your recovery journey? Um, so I have a sponsor. I meet with her every week. Her and I get into a lot of detail about trauma, um, things that I've done to really try to figure out like why I keep returning to that lifestyle. And are you currently living in a sober home? I am. I am. I um, I am at solid ground, and I've been in a lot of recovery houses. I've been in a lot of rehabs. You talk about a little bit about why you kept returning to that lifestyle. Do you mind sharing a little bit about why you did? So it starts off like, you know, I, I'm clean. I have a couple months in. I have a job. I'm working on getting my life back together, and I feel as though I was like, 
I don't need to call my sponsor or I don't need to work on myself anymore. And it's like, I've done this for so long and there's so much guilt, shame, you know, that I I still need to talk about. Like I still, I'm 32, but I need to relearn how to live life like a normal 32 year old. Mm. And I don't know how. I've been getting high for so long that I need someone that's that knows how to do this to teach me. So with the sponsor, do you find that that person is the one to teach you how to be a 32-year-old and how to have that quote-unquote normal life? She has found something. She, she has figured out a way to get clean and stay clean. So whatever it is that she's done, I need her help. She has done something that I obviously don't know how to do. And what are some of the challenges in, in recovery and deciding to stay on this path? Um, so th- there's a few different things. It's like sometimes it can be tough living in a sober living house. And sometimes I, I get on myself because I'm 32 years old. And you look at the average normal 32-year-old. They're married. They have kids. They bought a house. They have cars. And here I am just now working towards that not even close to it like I'm working towards that my children are with my mom and this is like one of the biggest things that I was just actually speaking with her today my sponsor that's probably one of the biggest things that I struggle with so I haven't always been the perfect mother and I don't give myself enough credit for at least trying and working towards like getting them back. Um, they still live with my mom in Baltimore and that's hard. It's hard to be away from them. It's hard to be away from my family. And with your children, do they kind of understand about the journey that you're on? Absolutely. They know. And I've been honest with them. I don't want to lie to them. I want them to be educated on it. I want them to know, like, you pick up that first time. Like, it runs in, it's it's in your family. You pick up that first time, like, even though it's, it's not a hard drug, like, that's where it's going to end you. And so you mentioned heroin. Um, you, did you start heroin when you were 15? First time I ever tried heroin, I was 14 years old. All right. And what were the circumstances that led you to try heroin? So I was dating somebody that was older, and, um, you know, I didn't know. I was 14, and uh, he was like, here, try this. I was like, all right, and I sniffed it, and I just remember with my face, like, in my lap on the phone, I had no idea it was heroin, and I don't know, it just, it felt, it felt right. Like that, whatever was going on inside me, that made me feel okay. And so was that what you continued to use as you were going through the cycle trying to get clean? Um, I started off with cocaine. So at 15 is like when I started. By 16 is like when my drug use really took off. Um, 
dropped out of high school. And for two years straight, like, I just, that was it. I was just running and drugging. And and then I had my son at 18, and that was the first time I got clean. And with that, um, having your son, um, you, so you went for the inpa- uh, intensive outpatient? Mm-hmm. And was that working? Like, I had no desire to get clean. The only reason why I did is because CPS stepped in, and it was either you get clean or you don't have your child. So, of course, I wanted it was my first, of course I wanted my baby. So um, going through that cycle, what was it like being a young mother and also trying to get clean? So it was extremely hard. I worked two jobs. I had an infant, and I went to IOP, and I went to self-help groups. So it was a struggle. It was really hard trying to juggle everything. But I stayed clean for a little bit. CPS got out of my life after like six months, and I continued to stay clean for probably about another six months. And that's when opiates, like, really, that's when it started. When you say that's when it started, what exactly started? So I started off with the pills. And um, I was taking them for, I don't know, maybe like a year, and I got pregnant again. But this time, like, I didn't use, so there was no CPS, there was no nothing. So I was clean for nine months, had my second son, and they prescribed me pain pills. And that's where I picked back up. And it just took off. Pills were getting too expensive, and finding them was getting hard. I live in Baltimore, just got a ride right down the street, and... Heroin was available, and it was cheaper. So you were using heroin, and and what led you to come to Frederick? So I ended up coming to Frederick last year. Um, I was using, and I went on like a five-day binge or four-day, something like that. And um, I went to my mother-in-law's house and detoxed. And she was like, you got to get in somewhere. And I was like, that's fine, just anywhere but not Baltimore. So we contacted the Gale House. I ended up getting in. And I, I went into their program. But then I relapsed. Um, got clean again. Relapsed again. And then I just, I left Frederick, went back to Montgomery County. And I was off to the races again. Like, I, I, I don't know what it is that really has me out there and, like, staying out there. Because it's not fun. Like, it's not. Between the chasing, like, and it, it really is. Like, your whole entire life is just centered around that. And, like, you don't care about anything else. You don't care who you hurt. You don't care who you lie to. You don't care who you steal from. You, you just want to get high. And were you, when you were getting high, were you with others who were also getting high, or were you mostly on your own? Um, my boyfriend and I actually relapsed. He actually came home, and we relapsed. And at first, like, we kept it, you know, a little secret. No one knew. And uh, we eventually both got caught and got kicked out of the sober living houses. And just since we're talking about, you know, the overdoses that happened in, in 2019, did you or anyone that you know overdose? So I have actually overdosed last year, 
but I've overdosed 13 times. And that's just being hit with Narcan. There have been times that I haven't been hit with Narcan. Then I have one out, and I have came back like eight hours later. And do you think having Narcan has helped you and helped others that you know? 100%. Absolutely. I don't know if very many people like know, but when you're overdosed, the lack of oxygen that gets to your brain, that's how my boyfriend ended up passing away. It was from the lack of oxygen to his brain, so he had brain damage. Um, so the, by, by the time like you either find them or you call 911 and they finally get there, could you imagine like the lack of oxygen going to your brain? And um, Narcan, I carry it on me even when I'm using in case I overdose or someone around me overdoses. I carry it. I have it. Narcan has been helpful and, and saved a lot of lives. And this last time when you mentioned that you were, you were scared your, that your boyfriend overdosing like triggered something, did that help you with the decision to get back into recovery? Absolutely. Um, when you see somebody you love like that just laid out, see, a lot of times like my family or people that care about me have found me overdosed. You know, now now I'm on the other side of it again. And I, wa- I didn't go immediately. You know, I still ripped around for a little bit longer. But um, this time I, I just, I don't know. It was something I just couldn't do it anymore. I'm getting, it's just a lot. It's, a, it's and like I said, like I battle with it every day. Like it's not easy. It's not, it's like there's always, it's like always something on your shoulder. Like you can just say, forget all this and go get high. The disease of addiction like talks to you and it does because like sometimes I think like all you had to worry about was just going and getting that, getting dope, getting money and getting dope. That's all you had to worry about. Now look, you have bills, you have responsibilities. Now you have your kids, you have rent to pay, you have a job to go to, you need to save money for a car. But like, it's not just going and getting that. It's like everything that that just comes along with it from hurting my family, stealing, running the streets. Like I'm, I stayed homeless in Baltimore City. Like I lived in abandoned houses down there. That alone was hard. So you mentioned how it's always on your, you know, the back of your shoulder kind of saying like, just, you know, you could just leave all this behind. When you f- hear that or feel that, what makes you say, no, I, I'm not leaving this behind. I'm staying on this path. So it's like, do I really want to put my kids through this again? They say you can't get clean for somebody else and you can't. You can't. You have to want it. And it's true because I've tried. I have tried over and over and over to get clean and stay clean for somebody else. But the hurt that I have caused them, the pain that I have caused them, do I really want to continue to do that? The hurt that I've caused myself. And so how long have you been in recovery right now? Um, I have almost four months clean. Congratulations. Thank you. And you mentioned um, with your sponsor who, who helps you through this process, but for those who might be willing to enter recovery or on this journey as well, what is some advice that you have for them? So make sure that whoever it is that you connect with, 
you want a sponsor that you are comfortable with calling, texting, opening up to. I tell this woman stuff that I normally wouldn't tell other people because a lot of addicts don't like to open up or say things that they've done in addiction because it's embarrassing, especially females, and it's hard. So just make sure that you find somebody that you connect with. You you might not want to ask them right away. Like you might want to just go out and talk or, you know, whatever. And it might take a little bit. You know, the first person that you meet might not be the one that you want to sponsor you because you do. Like you have to trust them. Trust that what you're getting ready to tell them is not going to go anywhere else. And for those who've never had substance use disorder used before, what's something you want them to know about those who are in recovery or those who have used before? So when a lot of people look at like heroin addicts, and I've seen it before, like where they're just like junkie, you junkie. Just remember, like, this is a struggle that we struggle with every single day. It's hard. The first time I used when I was 14, 15, remember, like, there's a lot of people that don't know how to, to live like a normal life. Um, we're not just junkies. We're real people. Like, I'm somebody's daughter. I'm somebody's mother. I'm somebody's niece. And it's not easy. And how about your kids? What's, it, what's something you want them to know about the journey that you've been on? <laughs> that as long as I come alive, I will continue to fight. <laughs> I love them so much. And, um... I just, I'm sorry I haven't been there. <laughs> but I will always continue to fight. <laughs> this is not what I was meant to be. I was not meant to be a heroin addict. I wasn't. <laughs> but it happened. And I don't want this for them. I don't. I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. All right, so you're currently living in a sober home, and you're almost four months um, clean. So what is the next steps for you? So I've been at solid ground now for a little bit, and I work full-time. I'm getting ready to purchase a car. I just got my – well, I have to take the driving test, but I'm about to get my driver's license back. Um, I don't want to go too fast, you know, because that's when I fall. So I plan to stay there for a little bit. Um, I would like to go back to school. I, uh, Like I said, I dropped out. And um, I've been back and forth with the GED classes. So I want to go back and get that. And then, I don't know, I would like to bring my kids out here. I would like to get them out here. You know, not within like the next couple of months, but, you know, just give it some time. You know, it's hard. Um, and I've learned that when I move too fast and, like, try to get everything is when it's a lot. And so you're planning to stay in Frederick? I do. I do. Like I said, I was out in Frederick last year, and um, I met a lot of people, a lot of a good people. In recovery, out of recovery. Um, and I do. I like it out here. 
I do. And do you think Frederick has a good, you mentioned people um, that are in and out of recovery. So is there a good network for those who are currently going through recovery in Frederick? There is. There is. Um, there are a lot of self-help groups. Um, I've met some amazing people out here. When I relapsed and got kicked out, um, a good friend of mine actually let me in her house when, like, a lot of people were upset and didn't want to talk to me. Um, but, yeah, there's a lot of help out here and a lot of people w- that are willing to help you. See, like, before, like, I wasn't willing to put work in. Like, I would get a sponsor. I wouldn't call her. I wouldn't do step work. I wouldn't do it. You know, I wouldn't open up. But But, like, now I am. I'm willing to do something different to get something different. It's like I, I get to go to work every day. I get to live in a sober living house. I get the help that I ask for. You know, I'm able to see my kids today, and they're able to see me clean. I'm glad they're able to see me like this today. I'm glad they're able to see that their mom is working towards something, something. And, like, that's what I was going to tell you is that I I don't give myself enough credit because I'm 32 and I work at a job. I'm not in a career. I don't have my GED. But at least today, like, I'm working towards that. I'm not sticking a needle in my arm. Well, Megan, thank you so much for coming on and and telling us your story. We really appreciate you taking um, the time to, to delve into some of the personal aspects of your life. No problem. Before we go, our food and education reporter, Katrina Pereira, joins me now to talk about her latest food review. So, Katrina, where did you go? So, this week I went to Plaza Mexico, which is a new restaurant in the Warman's Mill neighborhood. All right, perfect. And what did you think? Um, I thought it was great. Um, They have a very vast menu of different uh, Mexican and sort of Spanish-style dishes, and I, I thought it was really good. And so what were some of the dishes that you got to try? So I tried, you know, kind of their classic burrito, tacos. Um, I had guacamole. Um, and then I also tried a few different things like their uh, fuevos con chorizo, which is like like a brunch dish, which is eggs and uh, chorizo. I tried um, their carne, carne asada, their fajitas, a whole bunch of things. All right, perfect. So what was your favorite dish? So their carne asada was... Very good. Um, and for those who have been kind of following my reviews consistently, they know that I've had very bad experiences with carne asada in the past. Um, and so I was very skeptical going into this one, but I thought it was exceptional. Um, the steak was a little bit on the thicker side, super, super juicy, super tender. Um, and it the marinade that they used on it is kind of this like tangy vinegar-based marinade, and it was just absolutely delicious. All right, perfect. Any other recommendations for what people should get? Um, I definitely recommend doing the table side guac. Um, there's a lady that wheels around a cart, you know, with fresh avocados and red onions and tomatoes and jalapenos and all that. Um, and she will make it for you based on how you want it right by your table. Um, and what I was really impressed with is the guac was just so good. Um, but she is so talented because she makes this guac without ever tasting it 
you know, during while she's making it and she presents this like beautiful bowl of guacamole in front of me. And I just thought that that was so amazing because, you know, as a chef, when you're cooking, you're constantly tasting. And for her to be able to just make this really delicious bowl of guacamole for you without touching it at all, I thought that was like really awesome. So. All right. Perfect. So get the carne asada and get the guacamole. Mm-hmm. Um, anything people should not get? Um, I'm going to be honest there. Burrito California was not my favorite. Um, it's meat cooked in kind of like an onion and tomato base um, that's then put into the burrito and the burrito is covered with queso and a little bit of pico de gallo on top. And I just found that it was a little lacking on the flavor and the queso was so overpowering in sort of every bite that I got. Um, so it was not my favorite thing. Um, the fajitas were kind of average, um, nothing special about them. Um, but other than that, I mean, for the most part, all their food is pretty good. And what about drinks? Did you try any of the margaritas? Yes. The margaritas, I will say maybe just the one I got was a little watered down, but I would definitely go for maybe like their Paloma or their Mojito. Their Mojito was really, really good and it'll make you kind of feel like you're sitting on a beach. So, All right. Perfect. And so since you mentioned a beach, um, what was the vibe of the restaurant? You know, like that typical kind of Mexican style, very bright, very um, kind of, you know, bright colors like fun vibe you know it's it's beautifully decorated and it just kind of makes you feel like in a you're in a party atmosphere all right and most importantly what is the price like for this restaurant so most entrees are about 13 to 20 dollars um i would say that nothing is going to put you over probably maybe 22 to 23 dollars so pretty pretty typical all right favorite girl katrina thank you so much for coming in thank you Frederick Uncut is produced by me, Heather Mangilio, and edited by Graham Cullen. We'll see you next week.